listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. One of the great gifts any of us can receive as a practitioner of the Dharma. And by the way, when I use the word Dharma, it essentially, I mean, if you translate it from the Sanskrit, it's truth. I think a healthier way maybe for, or a way that has, a way to talk about Dharma that has uh, fewer handles on it for grasping might be to say teaching. So when, when we're looking at this teaching, this Dharma, this teaching, one of the great gifts that someone can give us is uh, metaphorically a bloody nose. If anybody can challenge us to the point of kind of tearing at something in us, we can then become very clear about where our attachments are. Now, on the one hand, this totally sucks because, you know, of course, you'd like to think as a Dharma practitioner that you're above and beyond any and all conflict and so forth. That would be really cool, um, but it's just not real. Real Dharma allows for space to show up when conflict does happen, okay? So the great misconception is that enlightenment means no more pain, no more, you know, it's everything will be blissful, I will radiate, I might even float, won't need a car, I can walk through walls once I get, no. You can try, and I encourage that, but it'll put you in touch once again with your attachments, okay? So... Bloody noses, <clears throat> especially when it's someone you love, when it's someone who's near and dear. My wife and I had a situation this, uh, this past weekend where someone very near and dear to us kind of gave us a, both a bloody nose. And it was very interesting being able to practice that experience together with someone else. Uh, and I mentioned uh, last time, I believe, that we <clears throat> excuse me, met, or the time before, that one of the great gifts is working with another so that the relationship itself becomes a spiritual practice. You don't have to have the other person willing to do it either. One of the cool things about the teaching is that you can let the relationship be your spiritual practice. Anyway, as Allie and I kind of, you know, withstood this, this, uh, this onslaught of, uh, of negativity, it was very, very interesting, our conversation, not only with the person as it was going on, but then afterwards with each other. How is it that we can let this teaching of non-grasping inform what it is that we do in our day-to-day? So on the one hand, you have to let go of whatever slight you feel comes, you know, or is perpetrated against you. That's, that's the first thing is forgive it. 
okay? Doesn't mean don't respond to it. And in the moment, this gets really, really tricky because what we wanna do when we get a bloody nose, depending on your, your orientation, is to either hit back or cower or some variation in, in between. Right in the middle, where you're not running away, you're not cowering, and you're also not going after aggressively, is this amazing space of freedom that allows for opening. Unconsciousness cannot survive in that space of opening. It can't, it cannot handle it. And so what will happen is, if someone is, is locked or caught or hooked by something that you have said, let's say, or you are uh, caught by something that they have said, if you can create that space around what's just happened, love, for lack of a better word, love can kind of surround the moment. And there's no violence in that. The love might sound like no. Literally, that word might sound like no. It might sound like a limit, in other words. Love does not mean necessarily that you are open to any and everything that can happen or be perpetrated against you without responding. It means that you are open and available to everything as it happens, when it happens. Does everybody hear the difference there? There's a huge difference. I mean, it might sound very subtle. But this, this loving space that we can create around our situation allows for whatever happens to happen without resistant, resistance. But it doesn't mean that we have to fire back with some type of passionate burn. It doesn't mean that we have to run away and be in a space of fear. It means that we meet what arises. And again, unconsciousness can't handle that. That which is contracted, wants to box, cannot handle not having a partner to box with. So it either shuts up or goes away. Try this. Try this. Be very present the next time something comes up. The next time negativity, let's say, is thrown at you. Or the next time some type of behavioral move comes at you that really rocks you. Get quiet. Get intensely familiar with the feeling of what's going on. Don't grasp the feeling. Don't avoid the feeling. Just get, in, just get there with it. Take a breath. Maybe take two. Maybe take ten. And then respond from a place that isn't clinging. This takes practice. And I am not the best person to talk to about taking time prior to saying something. It's the stand-up comic training that was so, you had to be, or I had to be so alert and on my toes when I was performing at such wonderful venues as the Cask and Cleaver in Visalia, California. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Frito's Chuckle Hutch in Los Banos. Los Banos. Uh, yeah, I did say it right, didn't I? Los Banos. Like, where is? 
The baño, exactly. The bathrooms, right? Actually, kind of cool towns, to be honest. Uh, but the crowds that were attracted were just really, really remarkable at putting me very much in a space of, okay, where am I going to be attacked? Which drunk am I going to have to deal with and where are they sitting, right? And that's the epitome of unconsciousness. Living in a space where you have to be reactive as opposed to open. This is why you'll find that the best comics are so comfortable in their own skin. They're so awake, right? They're so awake. There's a grace to what it is that they're doing, regardless of their material. Their material can just suck. But it's as if, as, they, as it says in the Bible, they know the truth, and the truth sets them free, so to speak. Yeah? Does this make sense at all? It's just the most powerful thing in the world. And so I know coming from a deeply unenlightened space as a comic, and I was about as asleep as you could get when I was going through you know, much of that <laughs> the stand-up stage in my life. And I'll be happy to talk about that sometime if you wish. But it, you know, I was waiting for the attack always. And as a result, I had an entire quiver full of arrows that were so explosive, so powerful, that I would just shoot people down with force. That's actually helpful to the art. Okay? You, you want to, just in case any of you decide to get up on stage and do an open mic sometime, you want to make sure you can control as best you can the environment so that everybody feels secure with your security. There's a reflexive relationship there. It's really cool. Have you ever noticed that? When someone's choking on stage, you kind of tense up. Have you ever noticed that? And when there's someone who's just absolutely relaxed and in control, it's like you, you relax and you let them make you laugh. You let them take you on a journey. Those quivers don't work, or rather those arrows don't work real well when you're in a relationship with somebody that's uh, slightly more intimate than, say, a member of an audience. Hope you hear my irony there. If you treat those you love as members of an audience, you've created a massive, unreal, surreal separation between you and them. So to kind of bring this, bring this around, and our, our theme tonight is kind of this, you know, actually we've been working with it for several weeks, is this idea of grasping, of clinging, and what it does to us. If someone trespasses against you, forgive them. Forgive your trespasses against others. And then in that forgiveness, that giving space, Allow a response that encourages awakening in you and in the other person. Offer your hand. Invite them to dance with you in that awakened space. And see what happens. What does that mean? Dancing. What does dancing mean? Yeah. It means recognizing fully the give and take of relationship, no matter who it's with. It is give 
and take. It's not take only. It's not give only. This allows us to have, it allows us to, in other words, I sometimes use, um, the reason why I like to use the word, the, the verb dance, is because there's a huge, I've talked to you guys about tango, the tango before. As you watch the tango, it, 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 I don't know what it, why I have such a personal like, uh, relationship with it, but it's just, to me, it is the dharma. It is the teaching. Because there is a push on the part of the male, okay? And the female must push back. She must resist in order for the actual beauty of the spin to occur. She has to resist. He has to push. He has to pull. And she has to give some type of ballast there in order for the swing to occur, right? So there is this give and take that is wordless. It comes from silence. It's oriented in stillness. And when it's done right, it makes you weep. And so every relationship can be like that dance if we give it that space. If we push and pull, okay, and meet that experience with every bit of our mind, with every bit of our heart, that allows us then to move through the world as grace, as opposed to moving through the world as someone with a quiver full of flaming arrows. So as we sit, just try, just try to be in that still space. Allow whatever experience is coming up to dance in front of you, allow it to be there. Allow it and recognize it without moving. Do your best not to flinch, either physically, I mean, if you have to, go for it. You just have to, okay? You have to move, go ahead. More difficult for some of us is not letting our minds flinch. Not letting our minds jump around from image to image to image to image to image to image, okay? The way we take energy from that experience is by watching the mind jump. Watch your mind swing like a monkey. Just watch it. That which is watching the mind swing like a monkey is precisely and forever still. Rest there. See what happens. Gently come back to your breath. Watch your breath. That which is watching the breath is not the breath. It is perfectly always and forever still. Watch your experience. Ready? Let's dance. I want to read to you from an upcoming book, soon to be released, by some guy. And this is about our craving. This is about our clinging. This is about the very activity, the primary activity, we could say, of ego that keeps awakening from happening, that keeps love from subsuming all aspects of our being.
It's in the crave. It's an addiction. Our addiction to things starts from a position of pain and ends in a position of pain, as we've talked about. It's our unwillingness to meet what's going on. Instead, we want something else. Every form of addiction, Carl Jung said, is bad. No matter whether it, the narcotic be alcohol, morphine, or idealism. I love that line. Sounds a great way to kind of start off this chapter. And I'm going to skip a little bit in here, but I'll begin by saying, <clears throat> unconscious habits develop from our inability to experience things for what they truly are. We might, for instance, make ourselves coffee or tea when we wake up each morning. If this activity is merely a habit, we are unplugged from the miracle of the whole experience. Do we notice the weather outside in the morning? How about what it feels like inside our home? Are we aware of the sounds that play around us? Are we aware of the silence between the sounds? Can we truly notice the smell of what we're pouring into our cup? Is it possible to consider how the whole experience came to us in this moment? Are we truly thankful for this brand new day that is guaranteed to be filled with mystery and possibility? Maybe we are. It is also possible that we'd rather just get back into bed. Regardless, if we plug into the mystery and the powerful nature of this inherently chaotic universe, the ego's sense of control gets overwhelmed. This is because the universe's activity is impossible for the ego to manage, just like it's impossible for a small child to change oceanic tides. Whether the ego will allow for this recognition or not, the job is just too big for it to handle. Of course, the ego can pretend all it wants, but when we climb the path up the mountain of spirit, we start to see the folly of it all. This recognition radically diminishes the ego's managerial position. In order to prevent its perceived loss of control, the ego creates systems and structures of habit and repetition that it believes will prevent this overwhelm as much as possible. One of the ego's perpetual charges is to enrich our lives with pleasure and keep out all of the pain. Even though the ego's attachment to this task is exactly what generates pain in the first place. This inadvertent fueling of suffering happens because whenever we experience pleasure, and we sense that it might be a temporary event, the ego immediately begins grasping at whatever it thinks will ensure that the pleasure continues. The problem is that the pleasure can't perpetually continue. No matter how much any ego might want this to be true, suffering will always eventually arise out of this habitual craving, no matter what the ego might grasp in order to preserve the experience of pleasure. The same thing applies to bliss. Bliss, like all other feelings, is temporary. With this in mind, we could just as easily look at the craving of more bliss and see that this is the ego resisting the loss of pleasure. 
moving toward what you like or moving away from what you dislike are the same move, one of my teachers used to say. This particular priest had a way about her that put everyone at ease. I loved her for this. In the face of so much seriousness around the Zen community, she offered smiles that could light up the night. Comfort and discomfort are temporary states. They, like everything else, will fade away, she would say. So get right in there with all of it, as best you can, again and again and again with total relaxation. Do this continually and know that in that still space that notices your state, the potential for deep realization will offer itself to each of us. I always felt like telling her that sometimes things really hurt and you want to avoid them, but I kept quiet and followed her advice to see if there was a deep realization waiting for me if I could just suck it up. Like usual, in time, I saw that she and all those before her who had said the same damn thing seemed to be right. Honestly, recognizing that both bliss and discomfort are temporary states frees us from fearing the loss of anything. Get over it, she'd say with a laugh. Whatever it is, get over it. Take responsibility for the way you relate to it, process it, deal with it, and then, when you're ready, let it go. Nothing lasts. This is one of the great laws of the universe, she'd say. But when we try to find a creative way to break this law and we realize that the universe always wins, we suffer. As harsh, as harsh as this may sound, it was an incredible offering to me. After more and more hours on the meditation cushion, it also seemed that pleasure and pain were tied together. Whatever pleasure I felt, I wanted to keep it. And yet I knew that I had to get over the fact that the universe was going to take it from me, no matter what. And this recognition brought pain. It was like underneath the pleasure, pain was always lurking. But then as I looked at the pain, with all of the awareness I could muster, I kept seeing that the universe was going to take that discomfort away too. I decided, I decided to ask my teacher about this one directly. So pleasure and pain are born together, she beamed. So I asked, then what's next? You mean, what's the ne next thing to grasp? She caught me. I didn't even see it coming. I desperately wanted to know more. I was craving. In fact, I was conditioned to crave. I'd been doing it since I was a little kid. I got my first real date in high school because of it, and it got me through college. Does it ever stop? I wondered to myself. Do I really even want it to stop? Practice noticing your grasp she said with tenderness. It allows for us to open to that which is beyond it, thus supporting a steadiness and peace that is forever balanced and beyond your craving. So what about craving enlightenment, I asked. Isn't that what all of us are here for? Maybe, she nodded. Regardless, craving isn't bad or good, nor is it something you are trying to get rid of. She paused and then smiled that smile again. She could tell I was frustrated. We should be very aware of it, Whatever its form, she said, be it mild or intense, that's what we practice. And this practice eventually breaks that which keeps us in bondage. Well, fine. Then what about something we're addicted to? Are you suggesting that uh, these people not try to quit their habit? I asked, recognizing that fire had lit itself inside of me. I had only experienced addiction on the level of a six-month-long smoking habit, habit several years earlier. 
but quitting was a miserable exercise in self-control. Surely watching my misery wouldn't have made the misery any more bearable. She looked at me and then said slowly, when our craving becomes unbalanced to the point where it cannot be observed in our experience and thus becomes pathological, we call this addiction. Whenever we refuse to face our circumstances, we begin to rely on our cravings and addictions to insulate us from actually feeling what's going on. We may cling to drugs, alcohol, sex, shopping, codependent behaviors, eating, reading about a particular topic, spiritual practices, or any other behavior or thought pattern that we habitually turn to in order to keep us from feeling what the universe is actually offering us in each moment. In this space of perpetual grasping, we live lives, she said, that revolve around our addictions, and each of our addictions begins and ends at a place of pain every single time. Yeah, but just watching your feelings doesn't stop them. I can't imagine telling someone deeply addicted to something to just get near their pain and that they'll be fine. You're right, she laughed. And if you told me that when I was trying to quit smoking, I might have punched you. I suddenly felt like we were bonding, both former tobacco junkies staring at addiction together. I couldn't quite picture her with a cigarette hanging from her lips, blowing smoke out of her nostrils, but it was a funny image nonetheless. No doubt, she continued, some addictions deserve extra attention and should get extra care. But after dealing with the most obvious levels of addiction, our meditation practice can help us at the most subtle levels. Okay, I said, trying to shake the, shake the image of her lighting up. But I've seen it happen that well-meaning people around this temple seem to become addicted to their practice of Buddhism. I knew in that moment I was on shaky ground, since she was one of the senior priests. But rather than glaring at me, her smile broadened even further, and her head nodded slowly. They grasp at the forms, she said, the scriptures and rituals, in my view becoming one-sided in their approach to the Buddha's teaching. This seemed interesting. Rather than defend what was essentially her tribe, she openly questioned it with me. And in the process of their grasping, practitioners will lose two things, she said. I just stared back at her. Practitioners of any faith who are addicted to their tradition first lose their balance along the path. She answered, looking at me sternly. Second, they lose the opportunity for enlightened, enlightenment. They become religious, closed down by the mind's interpretation of scriptures, addicted to ritual instead of becoming more and more aware of how the mundane is also sacred. They get caught in a cycle of becoming good Buddhists instead of becoming actual Buddhas, good Christians instead of Christs. We chatted a bit more. We even talked about the San Francisco Giants postseason chances that fall. Bowing to her as I left, I felt so lucky. Just to be able to have this kind of conversation was nice enough, but the temple ground seemed to speak the colorful language of autumn that day. Everything about that moment seemed over-the-top gorgeous. Of course, I did my best to watch how much I craved for more days like this in the future. I walked the gravel path back to my little room with tremendous hope. Be fearless in my attempts not to grasp, I thought to myself. She wasn't afraid of my questions, and I could tell that she recognized some of the hypocrisy that I'd noticed. It didn't scare her. It seemed like nothing did. She didn't grasp. Maybe that was her greatest gift. Someone who seemed so devoid of grasping, so totally fearless, so totally comfortable. 
and her compassionate message was clear. The barbs of our craving can't snag us as long as we're fully aware of them. What a blessing. that are aware of them, don't like them, try to control them, but they seem to be hooked. Yeah. Addictions hook us, and there are varying degrees. The awareness doesn't seem to like, cure it. The awareness doesn't cure the addiction, but what the awareness does is it puts us in a situation where the addiction the addiction's ability to catch us slowly lessens. Addictions are a form of mindlessness. Addictions are merely the mind's way of avoiding discomfort. You think about that. Every single addiction is about avoiding discomfort. Okay? Now, I spoke about my uh, whopping six-month smoking habit uh, and how the first couple weeks I enjoyed it because it gave me a little rush, gave me a little boost. It seemed to sharpen my mind a little, you know, and there was nothing like that cigarette with a cup of coffee. To this day, actually, I think if I, was, if I suddenly found out I had like three weeks to live, I'd probably start smoking that one cigarette with a cup of coffee in the morning. I just love that. I thought that was mm, nothing like it. Um, actually, I probably wouldn't start smoking again, but still, I just, uh, boy, I was really attached to that. After a while, the only reason why a cigarette ever came to my mouth was to forestall, to push away the feeling of withdrawal. Yeah. Um, and then once I decided to smoke no longer, after, you know, I was, you're over the physical addiction, what is it, in three days or something like that? Any of you who are physicians, you might be able to help us with that. But it's roughly, a, you know, within a week, if you don't smoke within a week, the physiological addiction is ameliorated to the point where you can kind of manage it. Yet the psychological addiction, the situations that you find yourself in where you always used to have a cigarette, those create these amazing triggers. And you want to get away from that pain. So what do you do? Light up. Or if it was another addiction. Say it's an addiction to an ideology. It's an addiction to shopping. I'm feeling kind of down. I'll go buy some new things. And for a while, they forestall. They keep that feeling at bay. Sometimes they're intense. Sometimes they're not so intense. The one that's the most intense that we are dealing with right here in this room every week is our addiction to a separate sense of self. We're addicted to that. To keep the feeling of the infinite at bay <laughs> as much as we want it because that's a natural progression of the universe. The universe is just trying to evolve through us. But that's freaky to that in us which wants to manage and control and analyze, compartmentalize, categorize. 
Yet every single time we experience stillness, we loosen that addiction to a separate self-sense a little bit. Every time we begin to witness our experience, we loosen it just a little bit. Staring at our pain, getting curious about it instead of caught by it, allows us a throughway. And we practice that again and again and again. And this is one of those places where it's sometimes helpful to look with a certain amount of faith at the practice. Um, not because I say so. In fact, you should totally question what I say all the time. It's actually the most helpful. That's a shortcut to, you know, uncovering stuff yourself is questioning me. You should also question the teaching. You should also question the tradition. But you can know this. There's a historical record of thousands upon thousands of people who have done this. They've all gone through exactly the type of clinging that all of us face right now. And they broke on through. To quote Jim Morrison, they break on through to the other side. <clears throat> I, uh, up until this point, have never quoted Jim Morrison in a Dharma talk, so I, I think we all should celebrate his addictive nature. <laughs> does that kind of make sense a little? Yes, I just have one other yeah. little question. Sure. Where does willpower fit into this? Where does willpower fit into this? You better have some. Right. Yeah. Is that a claim? You can be. Willpower can be a, a, a huge source of clinging. And it can be, it depends, it depends on your psychological orientation. Some people, um, you may know, have enough willpower to change the course of rivers. You know, I mean, they're just those people that live like bullets. You know what I mean? Other people have none. And you're amazed that they can actually even wake up and cook breakfast. I mean, they're, that, they're in that mushy space. The, the uncovering this teaching requires that we have a combination of both of those qualities. There's a middle way, as we call it, where you have to have a tenderness, a soft and pliable mind, heart, that has to be in there, okay, in order for this stuff to gain any traction. You also must have steel. You must have a spine. You must have a backbone. You must be able to call a spade a spade. Otherwise, you will never see truth. You will never uncover truth within or without. Merging those two things together, the softness and the hardness, looks just like this. Just like a bow. And so we dance there. The middle way. Yeah, and the middle way is balanced. It's not addicted. There are no crutches as you walk the middle way. There's nothing, because there's, paradoxically, nothing broken and nothing to support. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't think about that. Just let it 
Just let it sprinkle over you. <laughs> thank you. Michael, thank you for sharing a chapter from that book by somebody. <laughs> this book by somebody, yeah, I know. It's in, that's not even, that's just the introductory part. That's not the chapter. So, so there's more to come. There's more to come. But I'm curious. I, yeah. I have a question about this because it has to be a Dharmador. I know when I've written things and put them out there to the world, I want people to like them. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's an act of courage, I think. But I'm wondering how you're... How it's going for me? Do this, yes. Yeah, uh, you mean the writing process? No, or the, the, the or reading, it, reading it publicly? Yeah. Will they like it? I couldn't give a rat's ass. <laughs> this is not a, and I sure did when I started. <laughs> so I'm serious. It's very intense evolution in this. This this work right now is all about polish, and then it's really, and, and it's it letting go. And if if it wasn't about that, I would be lying. N none of this stuff would make would have any authenticity to it. If people end up buying the finished product, great. If they don't buy it, great. Because, and it's funny because Allie and I were talking about this the other night. She said, wouldn't it be nice if um, the book really sold and then like, you know, we could uh, not have to work as hard and everything. I said, yeah, sure, that'd be really cool. I said, but if it doesn't, we're still doing okay. And she said, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and I, I kind of feel, um, I feel so lucky to just be able to put this stuff down for all its warts and flaws. It, just to be able to put it down is the, is the process. And every once in a while, uh, like I'll be reading and I'll go, ooh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a kick. Whenever you look at your own prose and you go, mm-hmm, you know? Um, and it's also a kick in the pants when you look at it and you go, oh, my God, I can't believe that came out of me. You know, just that was just awful, you know? So it's just a, it's a meditation now at this point. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why I don't care. Um, and maybe those words aren't the right words to use, but it's just like it's no longer. I, you know what I think it is, Jeannie? It's going through the editing process. This is now the fourth uh, rewrite, and it's still not done. You know, I mean, it's gonna this this last polish is is gonna be it. It's gonna go out, but it's like. Hmm. You know, at some point, uh, and I've heard this from other authors, they say, you get to the point where it's like, I'm done, you know? And so I, I think I felt like that for the last three rewrites. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. I don't think I really, huh. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel as though it's part of the very first time I sat with you, you said, I feel as though I've received a gift that's worth millions of dollars. Yeah. And I want to share it. Yeah. And this feels like part of that. You know what? That's a really good way to put it. There's no way I could, the, the experiences I had at Green Gulch, at Copan, at um, every one of the, 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 the monasteries, um, uh, Swan Mok, all, all of them that, that I had gone to, 
chasing Buddha, they all uncovered, each one of them in their own way, uncovered chip by chip by chip by chip, this, this in infinity that I can't, I don't feel like I could ever repay. And if any of you did this, you would be doing exactly the same thing. It's there, and I'm not, this isn't false modesty. It's just, this isn't not, this is a very natural, it's just a very natural thing. I mean, you, you, when you, when you, uh, you can't not share this. Thanks for coming. <laughs>